1: to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. I'm very excited to be joined today by Dr. Jace Weaver. He's the director of the Institute of Native American Studies at the University of Georgia, as well as a professor of religion and adjunct professor of law, holding a J.D. from Columbia Law School and a Ph.D. from Union Theological Seminary in New York. That Dr. Weaver wears so many hats is no surprise if you're familiar with his wide breadth of scholarly work, which focuses primarily on indigenous religious traditions, literature, and law. You may also recognize his voice from PBS's American Experience series, We Shall Remain, where he served as a historical advisor and interviewee on Cherokee Removal. In his latest book, just out from the University of New Mexico Press, entitled Notes from a Miner's Canary, Essays on the State of Native America, Weaver brilliantly coheres a diverse collection of unique essays into a compelling addition to Native American studies, a field in which he plays no small role in shaping. Indeed, the first essay critically assesses the field, its many pitfalls and far greater possibilities, arguing for an independent and deeply accountable indigenous scholarly praxis. With this theoretical grounding, Weaver goes on in the following essays to explore the Indian as icon, the significance of NAGPRA, an American Indian perspective on U.S. criminality in the so-called War on Terror, an exploration of indigenous environmentalism, and even a rather unique chili recipe as an answer to the dreaded Indian questions always faced by indigenous scholars. If this seems like a lot, well, it is, but we should expect nothing less from this accomplished scholar in Native American studies. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, Dr. Reaver. Hello. So we're discussing your new book, Notes from a Miner's Canary, Essays on the State of Native America. It's recently released from the University of New Mexico Press. In your last major collection of essays titled Other Words, uh, you wrote Native American Studies is, by its nature, two things, comparative and interdisciplinary. And in this new impressive volume of 17 essays, uh, you certainly make good on that observation, touching on everything from ethics in native architecture, critical analysis of federal law, indigenous hauntings of the white settler consciousness, and even a uniquely Oklahoman chili recipe. Um, but before we get into the meat of this book, no pun intended, I want to start by asking you to tell the listeners a bit a bit a bit about yourself.
0: well, um, as you know, I'm uh, the Franklin Professor of Native American Studies at the University of Georgia. Um, I've been, and and I'm the director of the Institute of Native American Studies in Georgia. I've been here uh, going on nine years and uh, uh, was born and raised in Oklahoma, as you know from the book, if you didn't know it already. And I've been involved in Native American studies for, oh my gosh, now uh, uh, over 20 years. And uh, that was my tenth book.
1: What, what what attracts you to this this form of publishing, this collection of essays, as opposed to um, full monographs? Why do you why do you choose to publish in this manner?
0: Well, uh, I don't uh, eschew monographs. I've published uh, three monographs, if I count correctly, and uh, have another one in the works. But um, what I find is that this format and this is the second time that I've done it, allows me to do a couple of different things. One is uh, journal articles, even uh, in the most uh, visible location, have limited exposure. Uh, Often published in a, or chapters in a book, Uh, for instance, the architecture chapter that you mentioned that I wrote with my wife, uh, was published in... um, a book on architectural ethics, it came out of a conference on architectural ethics at Arizona State, and um, it's the only Native piece in the volume. So it's unlikely that anyone in Native American studies would uncover it. So this format allows me to bring together uh, disparate pieces that I have uh, published in a variety of venues. That uh, may not be readily available or readily apparent. I guess I should say, and uh, to bring it together with bring those together with uh, previously unpublished pieces, new pieces, um, and by this process to illustrate the three major strands of my work, which is uh, cultures and religious traditions. Uh, I have a PhD in religion. Law, uh, I'm a lawyer and have a doctorate in the law from Columbia. Uh, and in literature, I've been very involved in literary criticism. And those are three of the real steeples of excellence, three pillars in Native American studies. And so to demonstrate this interdisciplinarity that you refer to, this kind of Uh, A project allows me to uh, demonstrate that. And then of course the law and religion are in and of themselves interdisciplinary um, in that they use a variety of different methodologies.
1: Now um, as you mentioned this book is very much written within the context of Native American studies a field in which uh, you play no small role in shaping. Your first chapter in this book entitled More Light Than Heat the current state of Native American studies uh, is very provocative, perhaps controversial assessment of the field. What do you argue in this essay, and where do you see Native American studies heading?
0: I'm very hopeful, actually, about where Native American studies is heading. Uh, pr- probably more hopeful uh, than if you had asked me that same question ten years ago. That chapter originally uh, appeared as Uh, a lead essay in American Indian Quarterly. Uh, When Amanda Cobb uh, took over the editorship of AIQ, she asked me to join the board. And then she asked all of the board members to produce an essay on the state of the field. Um, Very few of those actually eventuated. I was, I think, the first to get mine in. I've always... You get asked to do this kind of thing all the time, and I usually resist it. Because as I say in the piece, they they usually become either laundry lists that don't mean much of anything to anyone. Uh, There was this book, this book, and this book. Or they come off as cranky rants. Uh, And there's probably a little bit of both in that chapter on my part. Uh, It's probably become best known for my uh, statement that our field is a mess. Uh, which people have taken out of context <laughs> that's, all, that's all they've taken away from it what i said was that i argue in the piece that native american studies is a discipline and i say that our field is a mess there's a lot more sloppy work done than good scholarship often uh... there's careerism and petty jealousies and backbiting uh, which is to say that it's just like any other discipline within the university, within academia. Uh, And that was the context within which I said that. But I argue strongly that uh, Native American studies is its own discipline. It's much like uh, religion or religious studies, in that no one would argue that religion isn't a discipline in the university, but there's no overarching methodology for religion the way there is for say history with the stress on the archive or on ethno history or um, anthropology with this emphasis on field work. instead in religion you have anthropology of a religion, you have history of religion, etc cetera, etc. Cetera. And I would argue that Native American studies is is much the same way but what it, it does what does market as a discipline is, uh, a commitment to Native American sovereignty and Native American community, uh, and a methodology, methodological approach that says we approach this material from an internal perspective, trying to understand the history and experience and cultures and literatures, whatever element you want to pick, uh, of Native America. From an internal perspective, as, as it would be understood by the participants themselves, rather than an external uh, point of view imposing outside categories.
1: One of the um, the the paradigms you argue for in that chapter um, is a term that you've used elsewhere, communitism, and where you say that um, that uh, work in this field should be accountable. It should be honest about its politics. Um, And in this case, you see those as often intimately bound with Indian sovereignty. Uh, Mm -hmm. What does this kind of committed political scholarship look like to you?
0: Well, as I said, committed to uh, Native community, and as I argue more fully in my book uh, that the people might live, Native American literatures and Native American community, that commitment and that community can take many forms. Uh, there are of course urban Indians, there are tribal nations, there are forms of community that exist outside of either of those. Um, so uh, but, but first and foremost, an involvement with community. But I would ar- I argue more specifically in that chapter that it r- requires a commitment to Native American sovereignty, the sovereignty of, now over 560 tribal nations uh, within the United States.
1: Now, um, in your second chapter, uh, you begin uh, talking a bit about the environmental crisis in Indian culture, and you explore the contested relationship between um, indigenous people and the environment, and bring, you bring in traditional knowledge into the equation. When you talk a bit about this um, and some of the backlash, in particular, I was pretty fascinated by many of the white environmentalists who express hostility to some native aspirations of sovereignty. You talk a little bit about that sec- second chapter.
0: Well, that second chapter, which gives the book its title, uh, Notes from a Miner's Canary, uh, was the lead essay in a collection that I did um, now many years ago in the early-mid-1990s called uh, Defending Mother Earth. Native American Perspectives on Environmental Justice. And that grew out of a conference that I organized in Denver composed of um, Native American Studies people, community, intellectuals, and environmental activists uh, to discuss this. And what you have is that environmentalists love Indians in the abstract. They don't always love them in the particular, especially because they create an icon out of the Indian uh, that is environmentally perfect. And by environmentally perfect, it means that that icon conforms to what they see as modern ecological practices and whatever they deem to be the good. Uh, It's always hard for us when we idolize someone not to think that they're a good person, and by good person we mean good person by our ethical standards. So, for instance, when the macaw on the northwest coast decide uh, to lift their self-imposed ban on whaling, uh, a number of groups... um, environmental groups, uh, Sea Shepherd and uh, so forth, protest them because here they are taking on yet another uh, big icon of the environmental movement, the whale. Uh, When in fact uh, the macaw waited until uh, the gray whale came off the endangered species list, they had agreed, again self-imposed, to limit their taking of whales to five per year. And it isn't going to be natives who are going to uh, overhunt whales, of course. It's it's commercial uh, hunters and the Japanese and so forth. Uh, another example that I think you're uh, aware of is that uh, when the White Earth Recovery Project, Winona LaDuke's uh, group uh, in the Midwest, wanted to uh, take over from the federal government, the Tamarack National Forest, which had been carved out of their reservation, the Sierra Club objected, saying that if you take over management of it, we won't have any say in what happens there. So there's a distrust there uh, between uh, the largely white environmental movement and Native Americans, including Native American environmentalists like Winona LaDuke.
1: What about this question of um, of Mother Earth? You 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 kind of elaborate some of the um, how that the contention around that whether that's a new concept or an old concept. Um, how useful is that concept, and what what role does it play in this discussion?
0: Well, as as I argue, I mean there was a book that came out shortly before I wrote that essay by. A, a non-native scholar named Sam Gill called Mother Earth, in which Gill argued that the concept of Mother Earth was a modern uh, fabrication, that it was taking the Earth and turning it, in Gill's own word, into a goddess, uh, when in fact it's no such thing. It's neither new nor is it a quote-unquote goddess. The concept is a valuable one, it's probably uh, gained some uh, currency uh, by the fact that it speaks of relationship and Native American uh, tribes, generally, uh, traditionally speaking, are extended families. And that's probably best played out in uh, Ela Cara Deloria's book *Water Lily*, which is about the Dakota, for whom kinship bonds are both complex and sort of all encompassing. To, to the extent that uh Deloria, uh the great aunt of Vine Deloria, hmm. says that even uh Wakantanka must be a relation to us because only with another relation do we understand what our reciprocal obligations and responsibilities are to each other. So, by speaking of Earth as mother, and of course the Earth does give us life, um, it it speaks of a uh, kind of protective relationship, uh, a uh, familial uh, relationship, and of course with tribes that have creation myths that are emergence myths, such as in the American Southwest, which is that the tribe says that they emerged out, out of from inside the earth. It's an, it's an image of creation as birth. It's an image of the earth as womb. So there's a very visceral and literal connection to a mother earth there.
1: And I just think, if, you know, you, you end this chapter with a very important contention, which is that even when discussing um, environmental justice based on traditional knowledge, tenure, and sovereignty, you say natives are not looking back to some supposed pre-contact idol they do not want to remain static. They do not want to stop the clock of time. And that seems like um, that directly challenges some of the essentializing paradigms of white environmentalists.
0: Sure. Uh, white, it's not only white environmentalists, sure. but, but um, non-natives in general, mm-hmm. in kind of the American imagination, have wanted to keep Indians in a stasis box, uh, to keep them somehow temporarily... Uh, pure and untainted by modern civilization the perhaps the, the flip side of that is that indians are never allowed to be coeval uh, they're never allowed to be contemporaneous in time not only to have not entered the 20th century or 21st century but not to have entered the 20th century the, uh, the most classic example of that which i uh, use quite often is uh, Henry Luce, the publisher of Time magazine and Life magazine, who in the 1950s and early 1960s banned any coverage of native stories, contemporary native stories from those magazines, because in his words, contemporary natives were phonies. They were just uh, the degraded descendants, I suppose, of those real, in inverted commas, uh, 19th century
1: Indians. Now I want to um, bring us up to the, the more contemporary period, particularly with your fifth chapter, NAGPRA and the return of the repressed. Um, first of all, um, I was hoping you can just introduce the listeners to NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, and then talk about some of the myths around NAGPRA that you seek to dispel in this chapter.
0: Yeah, that was a, 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 a previ- that's a new piece, uh, not previously published, but the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act was an act that was passed in 1990, after uh, much activism and lobbying by Native nations and groups. When Congress decided to create the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, they passed passed two acts. One was the uh, National uh, or the native uh, National uh, Museum of the American Indian Act, which uh, created was the enabling legislation for the museum and required um, the Smithsonian under whose rubric that museum would be created to repatriate or send back to tribes upon their request human remains that were culturally identifiable, and by that it meant identifiable to a specific tribal nation, human remains that the Smithsonian held, and the Smithsonian held about 19,000 sets of human remains. At the same time, they did not require the Smithsonian to repatriate any other category of material or object, because that would defeat the purpose of starting a national museum. But they passed NAGPRA, which required any entity receiving federal funds, essentially museums and universities, to again send back or repatriate to uh, tribal nations upon demand several different categories of objects, and it set up a priority among those categories. First, again, was human remains. Next were associated funerary objects, objects that came out of graves and are uh, identifiable with a particular uh, burial or a particular person's burial. Then below that, non associated funerary objects, objects that are what normally would have been found in graves and probably were but because of bad provenance or other reasons, they are not associatable. The next category, sacred objects. Sacred objects are objects that are necessary for the performance of particular rituals or ceremonies, or are necessary for the revival of those ceremonies, because in some cases, because a museum has been holding a particular object or medicine bundle or what have you, a particular ceremony can't be performed. And then finally, in the most contested category, is cultural patrimony. These are objects of cultural significance to a particular tribal nation that don't fit any of the other prior categories, and that's the order with which museums have had to deal with this subject. So that's the the basics of NAGPRA. Now, what was the second part of that question?
1: Uh, the second part had to do with some of the myths. Um, I was particularly interested um, when you talk about how NAGPRA is, is strangely conflated with um, land claims and how that taps into, quote, some very deep-seated fear, guilt, and, re- and resentment. And you ask, what could be a greater fear than Indians taking back the land? How does that become associated, this this very specific act of legislation, uh, with some of these greater fears in the in the sort of settler consciousness?
0: Well, that is to my mind, a very peculiar thing uh, and um I never would have believed it until I actually moved to Georgia and um encountered this myth that the myth is that nagpra allows native nations if a grave is found on a piece of property that that land then reverts to the tribal nation. That's the myth, that they can take back the land if there's a great, if there's an Indian grave on it. And I encountered this in short order no less than four times after moving to Georgia. The uh, part of it, I believe, and I've talked this over with native archeologists like Irv Garrison here at UGA and Joe Watkins at the University of Oklahoma. Part of it, I think, has been, and they would agree, has been deliberate myth-making on the part of developers, because, of course, if in the course of developing a piece of property, there are graves found, there are protocols that come into effect uh, under NAGPRA uh, that require um, archaeological surveys, the proper repatriation and reburial of any human remains that are found. And developers don't want to be saddled with that. And so they've deliberately sown the myth in the public, in some cases, that it allows Indians to take back the land. And it encourages people, if a grave is found, to... As it were, sweep it under the carpet to just cover it up or ignore it or, or you know, uh, take the bones and quickly rebury them somewhere silently and not report it. But, but now, with the economy having gone down, I think this is less of a, a concern because there's far less development. But I think the developers during the uh, early uh, 2000s uh, were deliberately sowing
1: this myth. Do you think NAGPRA has been effective?
0: NAGPRA has been very effective overall. Uh, It has uh, generally done its job. Uh, There are, of course, museums that have resisted and dragged their feet. There are individual scholars who have uh, dragged their feet. Uh, Because, of course, museums are in the, the business of collecting. They're not in the business of giving back. But it has changed the way archaeologists work. It has changed Native American nation's relationship uh, to archaeologists. That doesn't mean that there still aren't controversies uh, over particular objects. Um, In my prior book, I wrote about uh, the Clackamas in uh, Oregon attempting to gain repatriation of a meteorite uh, that they had set up and used in uh, hunting uh, rituals, from the American Museum of Natural History in New York Uh, and of course the the most obvious controversy is the ancient one the the the, uh, ancient skeleton found on the Washington Oregon border sometimes called Kennewick man uh, which remains in the basement of the Burke Museum at the University of Washington uh, The United States government uh, was going to repatriate it, uh, that skeleton, uh, to the group of tribes that demanded repatriation. It was opposed by an ad hoc group of scientists that claimed that uh, important knowledge would be lost. And, of course, any time you rebury a skeleton and place it out of, There is potential knowledge loss, although I'd argue how much important knowledge in this case. But uh, the problem there is the definition of cultural affiliation. This was a 9,000-year-old skeleton. It was argued successfully uh, by the scientists that that was too old to uh, be culturally affiliated. Uh, the same is true of Mississippian remains uh, here in the, uh, well, in the eastern United States. Uh, they have not generally taken the, the position that those are culturally identifiable with modern tribes. There has been a bill in Congress that would fix this particular problem uh, by bridging the cultural affiliation between so-called prehistoric, and by prehistoric meaning before the coming of whites, uh, and modern groups but it has uh, never succeeded in being passed
1: now I want I want to turn to um, the next very compelling piece um, Turtle goes to war which is um, very historical and, and really helps um, deconstruct uh, some of the uh, decisions of the Bush administration in response to 9 eleven pointing out that um, it represents uh, a history of questions around habeas corpus and um, and 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 rights in the United States, especially in times of war. Um, i to just hoping you could tell us briefly about why you chose to write this piece um, and where this fits in or how you see this fitting in um, to the larger project you put forward in your work and, and in this book. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a very
0: good question. Um, after 9-11, with the executive order that created uh, Guantanamo and military commissions, and sought to place severe limits on the right of habeas corpus, I, as a lawyer and a human being and a United States citizen, uh, was outraged. And as a Native person, I was doubly outraged because only American Indians prior to this had any real experience with military commissions, and it was not good, such as at the end of uh, the Little Crows' War, the so-called Great Sioux Uprising um, in the 1860s. And so I wanted to put it in the context of American Indian memory of military commissions and military justice, and I wrote it in a fit of energy after 9-11, because I wanted to do something. I then privately published it as a book. What you have in the new book is a very slight abridgment of that originally privately published, self-published book. And sent it to uh, members of the administration and members of Congress. And so it, it was what I could do. I'm a lawyer and I write. So that, that was how it came about.
1: Uh, Any response from that, uh, from sending this? Uh,
0: Only two people bothered to respond. One was my uh, local member of Congress, Rosa DeLauro. Uh, I was living in Connecticut at the time, who responded. Uh, And uh, then Senator from Delaware, Joe Biden, Mm -hmm. uh, responded, now Vice President,
1: of course. Mm Mm-hmm immediately um, uh, uh, amicably was his response yes in, in both cases wow favorably and amicably that's great um, I want to change gears here a bit um, I'm talk a bit about Oklahoma which looms large in this collection whether it's a, a site of legal creation or or contention landscape uh, or a home why does Oklahoma factor into this collection so prominently
0: well I was born and raised in uh, Oklahoma and My ancestors came to what was then Indian territory uh, through the Trail of Tears. Uh, The last piece, uh, which is new to this collection, deals with that transition, particularly of my family. Uh, But I was born and raised in Oklahoma, and Oklahoma is – uh, every state, I guess, would claim this, but uh, is in many ways sui generis because of its history uh, uh, with Native Americans and settlers. And uh, it's it's not a unique landscape, particularly. Although I love the landscape, you can kind of carve up the Oklahoma landscape into pieces. Uh, the northern part of the state looks very much prairie and like Kansas. Uh, the western part of the state is, is dry and moving into the foothills of the Rockies and the desert southwest. The southeastern corner of the state uh, um, is is uh, you know called Little Dixie and is, is rivered and, and wooded and so forth. The northeastern corner is the foothills of the Ozarks. So there's nothing unique about the landscape the way there might be about Arizona or New Mexico. But... Uh, it has a, a unique history as people. Uh, as I say in one of the essays, H.L. Uh, Minkin said of Americans in general uh, that we were a commonwealth of third-rate men, um, that no one ever came here who was making it on their own, which is the history of American immigration, largely. Uh, but... Um, That's even more true of Oklahoma, which was populated by um, cowboys and outlaws and grifters and grafters of all sorts. Uh, So it is a rather unique history. And then, of course, the forced removal from the southwest of the five tribes uh, adds a whole different layer on that.
1: Now, I think there are a few terms uh, in this book that um, people who are new to Native American studies might not be familiar with. Uh, one of them is, is survivance. Um, and I wanted to ask you, how is it different than survival, and why is it so important um, in this discussion?
0: Survivance is a word. It was not coined by the um, Anishinaabe writer, thinker Gerald Visner. It's a real word in French. Uh, but he repurposes it uh, in English, thus for English, coining it. He saw survival, I believe, as a largely victimist notion, although there's something noble in survival, obviously. But natives did more than just survive. Uh, And so survivance is, in his mind, a combination of the word survival, and endurance, that they endured and and managed to thrive.
1: Uh, Now, I want to talk about another uh, literary figure, um, Scott Momaday, who you write a very stirring tribute to in this collection. Uh, Why did you choose to write about Scott Momaday here?
0: Well, Scott Momaday is considered, I think, sort of the originary figure of what has been called the american indian literary renaissance or the american indian renaissance his publication of his first novel housemaid of dawn in nineteen sixty eight which then won the pulitzer prize in nineteen sixty nine the only american indian novel yet to win uh, the pulitzer really opened the door to a vast number of Native American authors, including Gerald Visner that we just talked about, but Leslie Marmon Silko and others who would be household names in Native American literature, the American public seemed hungry for it, and there has never there's been a constant flow of fiction and poetry and other kinds of literature from Native Americans uh, ever since. So he's important in that regard. But he has also been uh, prolific in his own way, but also protean. He's produced important memoirs. Uh, he's produced plays. He's produced poetry. He really is an outsized figure, uh, a larger-than-life figure in both Native American studies and Native American literature. And for the 40th anniversary of the publication of *House Made of Dawn, uh, studies in American Indian Literatures, which is the main journal focusing specifically on native lit, uh, asked me to consider uh, Housemaid of Dawn and the position of Mama Day uh, in the field. And so that's how that piece came about.
1: Now I'm going to leave um, the uh, details of the chili recipe to the readers, the hungry <laughs> readers. I will give a little bit of a teaser. There is no uh there are no beans in this chili. Um it's a very unique recipe. But I did want to ask about um how you open this brief chapter. You talk about uh the Indian questions. The questions that um native people or if or uh or native scholars on Native America if they're addressing a non-native audience these questions they always seem to get. What are the Indian questions?
0: Oh, they're there. there. I suppose they've diminished over time, but uh, a sort of stock list of questions that you can uh, imagine any uh, group of non-Natives, well-meaning, interested Natives, but uninformed uh, non-Natives, um, asking uh, of Indians. Uh, there are questions that we've all been asked at um, when we've given lectures. They range from, in my case, because I do religion, what do I think about Lynn Andrews, a leading figure in the sort of white New Age movement uh, who plays upon Indian ritual and supposed tradition, it's a fictive tradition, to uh, do you play the drum? Um, I've been asked that. I know others who have. Um My favorite, which I think I cite in the uh, essay, was uh, my mentor, Homer Noly, Choctaw historian, who began a paper at the American Academy of Religion with a list of these questions. What do Indians eat? They're all kind of generic Indian questions, you see. What do Indians eat? There's no specificity involved. What do Indians believe about God? So he runs through all of these with his sort of snappy comebacks. And then at the end of his paper, the first young woman up to him asked him, what do Indians think about Thanksgiving? Now, I'll give her credit that she came in late and didn't hear that intro, but um, those are some of the Indian questions.
1: Gotcha. Um, Now, you have a very provocative essay also uh, called Blackface, Redface, and the Yellow Peril, and and it kind of engages um, the role that race and ethnicity Play in Native American studies. You focus particularly on the Freedman question uh, in the Cherokee Nation. Tell us a bit about this essay and its place here.
0: I, I don't believe I focus terribly on the Freedman question. I believe it. I mean, it, it does play into it, uh, and, and I believe that race has too generally been underestimated in Native American studies, as until recently in American studies in general. But what I wanted to do with that essay was internationalize primarily Native American studies, or as the organization is called, uh, our professional organization, the uh, Native American and Indigenous Studies Association. So I wanted to look at some of the good work being done internationally by scholars. Uh, about American Indians, Native Americans, and it fits within my, with with our overall discussion here, because A, those scholars working internationally often lack the resources and access that we have here in the United States, but that often makes them more creative, and also they come without a lot of the baggage. Americans bring uh, to the subject, which makes it valuable, but also uh, this work, and I primarily focus on um, Asian, Asians working in Native American studies, is almost completely unknown to Americans. So I wanted to set up the possibility of dialogue internationally uh, between or among scholars working on issues involving Native American.
1: Now as we, uh, we get towards the end here, I, I think I was remiss in not uh, asking you um, a bit about the title of this collection, Notes from a Miner's Canary. Where does this idea of Miner's Canary come from and what does it, what does it signify in the discussion of Native North America?
0: Well, um, it comes from um, Felix Cohen. Felix Cohen was a lawyer working for the Interior Department during the Roosevelt administration. He was uh, Jewish and was terribly interested in American Indians. He, was, he had been involved in reform movements and so forth. He, um, when he came along, federal Indian law, the laws of the federal government relating to Native Americans, had been reduced uh, pretty much since uh, the Lone Wolf decision, Lone Wolf versus Hitchcock in 1903, to just the plenary power of Congress uh, decided by the courts. It stems from the Constitution, but it says that Congress has full or complete or total power over American Indians, that they can do anything, Uh, It becomes a political question, Uh, and some vague sense of a guardian ward relationship between the federal government and natives. And he wrote in the early 1940s, late 1930s, early 1940s, the handbook of uh, federal Indian law, which was an attempt to restate and codify federal law regarding tribal nations. And he really re-injected into the law some sense of tribal sovereignty. Before him, this was all virtually gone. And he said that the American Indian in the United States played essentially the same role that the Jews played in Europe. They were the canaries in the coal mine, marking the shift between the fresh air of democracy uh... and the poisonous air of uh... dictatorship and oppression and so that's where the title comes from the notes from a miners canary hmm.
1: Now, uh, we've been discussing Notes from a Miner's Canary, Essays on the State of Native America by Jay Sweever, just out from the uh, University of New Mexico Press. We've taken up a lot of your time today. Um, but I want to ask you, uh, by way of conclusion, uh, what are you working on now?
0: Well, uh, two things, one of which is almost uh, reached completion, and the other one hopefully will be done sometime in the fall. My wife and I have written um, a book um, on Cherokee removal that is part of a series uh, called Reacting to the Past. And it's, a, it's a method of teaching that was developed at Columbia University in New York that uses uh, game playing and, and role, sophisticated role play to teach about critical moments in history. That that is now uh, up on a proprietary website. It's awaiting publication in hard copy and should be out sometime in the fall. And then the monograph, the, thir- the fourth monograph that I referred to, is called the Red Atlantic, and looks at the interaction of Native Americans Iraq- and their movement around the Atlantic Basin um, from the earliest times, in in sort of the year 1000 when the Vikings crossed, uh, up until 1927 when uh, Lindbergh's flight changed forever how everyone, native and non-native, interacted with that ocean. But it really is to fill in a gap in so-called Atlantic world studies which um, has ignored or minimized the role of natives in this cultural interchange, in this circulation of ideas and peoples around the Atlantic Basin and really is meant to put them at the center of this discussion in the way that Paul Gilroy's book uh, in the early 1990s, The Black Atlantic, placed... Africans and African-Americans back at the center of this discussion when it had been a largely discussion of white Europeans and white colonists.
1: Well, that sounds great. We hope uh, maybe we can interview you about those publications when, uh, when they do come out. Um, sure. Thank you very much, Jace Weaver, for discussing Notes from a Miner's Canary, uh, Essays on the State of Native America. Very much appreciate it. Thanks very much. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Jace Weaver, author of Notes from a Miner's Canary, Essays on the State of Native America. You can find us on the web at newbooksandnativeamericanstudies.com or track us down on our Facebook page where you can leave questions, comments, or suggestions for new books you'd like to hear discussed on this program. I'm Andrew Epstein from New Books and Native American Studies from the New Books Network, and we hope you join us again. Thanks.